Welcome to It's Complicated, the podcast about first-year English from Columbus State University in Georgia. I'm your host, Rebecca Gertis McLean, and with me is associate host, Joe Miller, and guest hosts, Leslie Haynes and Chase Fraley. Today, we're talking about teaching during the pandemic. Um, and so my first question for all of us to kind of think about is, uh, particularly in terms of our first-year composition courses, what has been the greatest challenge for you teaching during this pandemic? Well, don't all jump in at once. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll jump in. So um, there's been kind of a couple challenges that that uh, are ones I, I really struggled with trying to solve. One is the black screens on Zoom, uh, where it's clear the students have not just uh, hidden themselves, which I totally understand wanting to do that for many reasons, uh, but where it's clear they've stepped away, you know, when you call on them. Uh, they, they don't respond. Um, so that form of disengagement has been uh, troubling. And also an increase in plagiarism cases. Uh, I uh, Oftentimes plagiarism that doesn't even follow the assignment prompt um, and looks at the title. And then if I Google search my title of my assignment, um, find quite different answers from what I was asking for. Um, my most recent one was I was having students write a slice of life narrative and somebody gave me like a transcript for an anime show that's called Slice of Life. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. It's interesting to me even just the way, the way you answered it because those are two really concrete like specific things um, about teaching, but like when I think of that question, I, I it's almost like a bigger, like that just sense of my students feeling so overwhelmed and me feeling so overwhelmed, but like getting them to care about composition um, enough, you know, do the work for the class whenever I'm not even sure it's what they should be caring about most right now. You know, if their finances are a mess, if their family members are sick, um, just like the, the sense of urgency in the rest of their life is so big it, it's hard for me to even feel good about like, well, you know, we still have to do this stuff. Um, and so I had so many extensions and incomplete, <laughs> which are more work, but I but I understand, but they also are, aren't often good for students because they get so behind and kind of, you know, disconnected from the other stuff. For me, it's been a lot of um, uprooting and restructuring, which I think is symbolic mm -hmm. of like what the pandemic has caused us as a whole, you know? Um, so that's, that moving from like one expected dynamic to another requires a lot of work and a lot of effort to, um, you know, implement and see what happens and to make adjustments along the way. So there's this whole element of unpredictability, of course, but even if you try and plan for something, it's still unpredictable because you're caught in this ongoing event that you have no idea when it's going to be over and yeah. also because it is first year composition we have a lot of students who um are experiencing college for the first time yes you know virtually it's different and they didn't choose it right like they were not prepared they weren't interested they weren't necessarily invested in that mode and then they're put in it and they don't get college already yeah it's been a lot a really big learning curve yeah, they have no existing idea really of what college is, you know, based on their own experience. Like this is the thing that's producing what they know of college so far. And um, I mean, this is not true for everybody, but especially in the the, the first course of the comp sequence, um, it's pretty plain on a lot of my students' faces that they have no idea what's supposed to be going on you know um and of course like the way first year first year composition is taught is probably vastly different from what they're used to coming from high school Every, everybody's just a little uh confused with a big question mark holding over their heads <laughs> yeah yeah well for me and this is joe the associate host um 
my first thought is, of course, the uh, you know the students who are missing assignments and stuff, and all of us experienced larger numbers of those than usual, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, they're disconcerting because there's they're just not there, you know, and you don't know what's going on with your students, and mm-hmm. so I've you know that's been a challenge, and basically that I've met by just contacting students as much as I can, you know, ask them, do you need any help, giving them extra time that they need and that sort of thing. Um, but I think the bigger challenge on my teaching is to make the personal connection. Um, the mm-hmm. loss, since I've been teaching all online, um, the loss of my ability to, to talk in front of them extemporaneously and say sort of my, my, my stock lesson lessons and stuff like that. Um, it just, I'm having a hard time having that translated across to video or to uh, written email um, instructions. Um, I started off by doing little YouTube videos of the talks and uh, they didn't feel as strong as just when I'm up in front of the class sort of confidently saying my lessons and that sort of thing. But more so I could look at the view count and see that they weren't being watched, you know? So I had to adjust and my adjustments have all been toward less and less, simpler and simpler, uh, uh, very to the point, what you want to get across to the the students and, uh, um, and then following that up with more personal communications through through the comment functions on the software, uh, the class delivery software. Interesting you say that, Joe, because another thing I feel like I spent a lot of time this year thinking about was like of everything that we do, what is most important? And I was trying to just trim back everything that I could that that really wasn't important or necessary or that didn't like translate well, right? You know, sometimes it was like, a it'd be great if we were, were meeting in, in class. And part of me felt guilty about it because, you know, like, a type of work in the class was kind of going down. But I also think it's actually been a really good mental exercise for me to really each little assignment. So I kept trying to reproduce everything we do in class, which was creating a lot of homework, right? So they would do all those little activities that were class activities. But it it, it ended up, I think, just translating to kind of a bunch of busy work. And it's that back and forth in class of when they can ask questions when you're talking whenever you can just kind of see their faces and shifts and all of that. And since I can't reproduce it, um, yeah, like, but it's it's really made me think about my, like, assignment and what I want out of it and each little activity. Like, what do they have to do on this day? What are different ways that I can get it? Um, it's been a lot of work, but I, I think, you know, there, there have been valuable bits uh, within that. Yeah, I'm not right there with you all with the reproducing, not being able to reproduce that class connection and that atmosphere. And like you were saying, Rebecca, I think it translated, you know, every time I tried to reproduce that in various ways and think of like a new format to do a similar activity. Um, if I had been there leading it, I would be able to keep it under a certain time, you know, we actually help move students forward in activities and let them understand that this is a practice activity and they aren't going to be graded harshly. No matter how much you communicate that something's low stakes, you'll have one set of students that won't engage in it. And you'll have other sets of students that will engage too much. And that that busy work also becomes like a greater burden of time spent, like something that you would dedicate 10 minutes of class time to and then be like, all right, we're done, you know, and then wrap it up together. Uh, I'd have some students that would be like, I spent three hours on that. I'm like, whoa, you don't need to spend three hours on that. That was just a practice activity to help you understand what you're doing moving forward. Um, so that was that. And I hate, I like, like Joe, I uh, miss, I guess some of the performative nature and some of the uh, like personal communication that just happens naturally in a classroom. And it's a totally different performance to be like on a YouTube lecture. It it feels very rehearsed, feels very much like an old school lecture for a class that wouldn't even be an English class. Um, So yeah. Yeah, and my lecturers too, like I would sometimes have like like three points I want to make in a day and they would each in a real class happen like in five minutes and then we would do something for a while and then I would transition to the new topic and it would be five minutes but I don't want to make three videos right so I make a one 15 minute video and it feels like 
really boring, right? And like I'm just going on and droning and like shifting, like the whole rhythm of everything. It took quite a while to figure out what to do with that. Um, you were kind of transitioning, and so I thought we could just we can continue talking about this, but we can also think start thinking about um, as we're moving forward, right? And at least theoretically, things are going to be getting um, more kind of the usual setup in the fall, what are some lessons or experiences or tools from the pandemic that you are confident you're going to pull forward um, as you're kind of working with your students or building your classes? I'll tackle that one. <clears throat> um, the biggest change that I think came out of the pandemic is that um, now virtually all of my commentary is um, uh, encouragement, words of encouragement, praise, pointing out things that they're doing right. It's it's 100%, not 100%, there are still a couple things that I point out uh, writing-wise, but um, to sort of shift my whole practice of teaching toward one of complete compassion and advocacy on behalf of the students. That's what the pandemic, and that, it was a direction I was already going with. Uh, some of you might have listened to the show before know that I don't grade. I've really embraced the ungrading movement such that it is and that sort of thing and the, the pandemic just deepened that. Um, I guess to give you an example, um, the first semester, spring 2020, um, after it, well basically I just decided to give every one of my students an A for that semester. Um, and when I came back, I was dealing with giving students more time to do their assignments and, and being flexible with them and really sort of just acknowledging that we we're all in the middle of this once in a century horrible situation that I had no idea what any of my students had, you know, had to deal with in terms of, I mean, the biggest fear is that, you know, a student <clears throat> feeling compelled to come to my class and work on my stuff might risk giving the disease to their grandmother who takes care of them you know, and, and kills them and that sort of thing. So I'm sort of thinking about that, thinking about um, the difficulties of our students possibly having with their work schedule and that sort of thing. And I just decided, you know what, we all just went through this together. Whether you finished all the assignments at the end or whether you, you kept kept plodding along with the, the work that I did, I'm going to give you an A for this, this deal. And that's sort of symbolic of sort of somewhat of the direction that I've gone, that the direction that the the pandemic has taken me. For example, I've completely stepped away from, well, basically I just have the students write their own grade at the end um, and have completely shifted it over to their own self-assessment and then I'm in the role of advocate and helper. Different response maybe. Well, it, I mean, it's interesting. I, I The impulse of more compassion in my teaching and more flexibility and making myself think more carefully about the difference between rigor and rule following, that's definitely something that I'm, I'm thinking about even more deeply than I've, I've thought about it before. Um, I, I, it's not quite being expressed in, in the same way. You know, like one thing, there's a faculty learning community we have going on at Columbus State this semester about um, anti-racist writing assessment, which I think um, it has things like labor-based grade contrast and all of that that sound a little bit similar to some of what you're doing. Um, and it really is like, I, I do think there's a weird conflation in higher education that if you follow the rules um, and our students follow the rules and you enforce them, it's a rigorous class versus uh, other things, right? And I think the pandemic has dramatized that. It's uh, so, and I do think that will be something I'll carry forward with me, but I'm not sure how it's going to look in my classes yet, right? What that's that, going to do. That's a really good point, I think, about that, that you just made about, about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I'm not a huge role follower anyway by nature, uh, as a human being or as a, an instructor always. Um, I definitely, I would say I more experiment with ungrading. I, I kind of go between the two. I have some assignments that are absolutely, um, you know, if they end up not doing them, it doesn't really hurt them. And uh, if they end up doing them, they're gonna get a lot intellectually out of them and I'll give them um, feedback along the same lines as you, Joe, uh, 
focusing on the positive. And if I have to mention something that needs work, um, being very constructive in that criticism and not uh, critical in a way that that might make them feel feel any kind of harsh feelings, um, but that they can still reflect that onto their their positives. Um, but I think that one thing that that I was always really flexible with anyway was um, deadlines in writing, especially, uh, you know, I know in some jobs there are deadlines and they are hard. And if you don't do the thing by the deadline, you're going to get into some sort of trouble. And certainly college students will uh, encounter teachers in those fields that I think uh, can teach them the importance of deadlines in that field. But writing a deadline to, at least in my experience, has always only really been important in terms of my goal setting and then communicating with whoever that deadline is is um, like contracted with so that I can you know, get an extension if necessary. So I've really been emphasizing communication with me about where you're at in the project with my students instead of worrying so much about deadlines. And I think it's been really helpful they already kind of knew uh, before the pandemic that they could get extensions. They could contact me afterwards after not turning something in and I'd accept the late work. Um, but I think they now understand how important the communication is. And so now I have more students that communicate with me before missing the deadline. Um, and we can work out kind of a plan of action for them to move forward that may or may not get them to the new deadline, but I guess deadlines are meant to be broken and I've really embraced that. <laughs> the Another one of the things that uh, so I'm reading some stuff on this right now, which is why it's so big in my brain, but like the anti-racist writing assessment, one of the things they talk about is how um, the structure of our college classes, oftentimes it's so heavily focused on product that even though we know process is more important and we try to teach process, our assessment practices don't match that, right? And so something, um, and so I'm not teaching this semester, so I haven't had a chance to implement it. I'm gonna think about it for over the summer, but is how to shift my grading so that process actually re like reflects how important it is in the grade. So we kind of like have a lot of little participation points where I do right now that count for process. And then there's the product at the end that gets the big grade. Um, and you know, the product isn't as important to me, again, as the process for a bunch of reasons, genre and, um, you know, transferability of skills and all these particular things. But so that's an, that's another thing I think is along what you guys are talking about and um, having them set goals and then really make those those grades that are about things like revision and, and um, brainstorming and sometimes changing tracks completely and all of that, 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 that doesn't get penalized or lost in the kind of grade picture of the class. I had a student get really confused this semester over some of my process grades because the process works out to be more than the final yeah. uh, draft. And one part of the process that I have them all do, I teach um, integrated comp, which uh, these students need, I think, extra work on, on learning the process. And so actually equivalent to their final draft grade is simply going to the Academic Center for Tutoring, or I have two class mentors I work with. They go to um, one of my two class mentors, Anna Phillips or Molly Foster, who are great advanced English students. Um, and they, you know, the final draft is 50 point grade and going to the tutor is a 50 point grade. Um, and they're like, one student emailed me. I was like, is this a mistake? <laughs> uh, and I was like, no, that's how important editing and going to the tutor is. So. Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot too, um, especially piggybacking off of what Rebecca was saying, integrating reflection as, um, a more philosophically essential component of yeah. developing themselves as writers has definitely taken the fore, um, of my, you know, uh, new direction and teaching practices, I guess, um, and I, I also reflect back on what it was like to be in the classroom um, from a student's perspective and also from a teacher's perspective. And from either perspective, I think that that same sort of dynamic, as much as we miss it, can create its own sort of fatigue, you know, 
fatigued by the product of being in the classroom, um, even though it's varied by uh, group work and different sorts of activities, the occasional video shown, it's um, capable of accumulating to a sort of like uh, numb reception. And one thing I've taken away that I think is very valuable and I'll continue to practice for my teaching in the pandemic is to counter that sort of potential onset of classroom fatigue by continuing teaching through various channels and means like audio video production. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if I'm making a video about some aspect of an assignment or just some content that we're covering at the time, then I'm engaging in a totally different process of, you know, learning, you know, not to make it sound like I don't know it, but like learning that material for myself, um, just putting it into a different frame, you have to make all kinds of different decisions and it gives you a new look on, you know, the assignments that you've delivered many times in the past and that you feel you know, but just, you know, changing it from the, the mode of the classroom to the mode of like producing a video for YouTube or something uh can transform the way you see it and i'm i'm really curious about the long-term impact of the pandemic on like modes of teaching um particularly so i think about uh you know they, they want everybody to go back to face-to-face -to -face for lots of reasons some are you know economic some are you know one thing like the extended classroom model which is where you like split the class so that they come you know, on like on Tuesday and so on Thursday to keep the numbers down and all of that. But like over the semester, they start off wanting that they chose to be in the in-person classroom, but because there's always the option, by the end of the semester, there'd be like one or two, there were days where I had no students actually physically come to class. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and I think about it, like I'm the same way. If I can come to a meeting, uh, you know, versus Zoom versus having to go into the office, even if I intend to go in like the day of, there's just like so many small things. But so I, I know why there's that big push, but students also now are like, oh, Zoom's a thing, I can do this. Like if I have a real thing that comes up, shouldn't there be a way that teachers can be responsive and kind of have something for me? Um, or I'm thinking like at CSU, one of our course options is a hybrid course, which is where they meet either 50% in line and 50% in person or two thirds in person, so like a Monday, Wednesday in person and a Friday online. And I was never, I didn't have like strong feelings about it either way, but now like that, um, especially the 33% online for like a writing class, that actually seems like a really interesting, useful setup, like two days of in-person work and group. And then you can actually have them kind of like almost like a, a lab setting where they go and they do and they write or something on Fridays. So yeah. I, I think yeah. there's going to be some really interesting long-term shifts. Um, I think there's going to be a bit of a battle between students and faculty and administration about what they should be and why, but I don't even know what the answer is. I just, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see it kind of play out. Well, yeah. I'm one of those people who, who started embracing the hybrid model mm -hmm. long before the, the pandemic hit. And uh, to me, it, it is perfect for composition. I think um, I've long thought that the class activities and talk, sp spending the time, filling the class time with talking or some sort of activity was really unnecessary that the essence of what the students have to do is that they have to write and, and experience the the process of it um and really the things that i want them to learn are i mean there i've got like maybe a dozen aphorisms that i hope they can carry with them moving forward so if i hybrid allows me to sort of cut out all the clutter that the students from my perspective i mean i'm sure some professors are great at filling class time with all kinds of different activities where people are getting up and moving around and all that sort of stuff. But coming into the field as a professional writer, like my sense was that all this, none of this stuff has anything to do with really writing. Like, you know, writing is just, you got to sit down and freaking write, you know, and you get better at it through the process of it and that sort of thing. So, um, so hybrid allowed me to just sort of get rid of that whole expectation that we had to fill this whole hour and 15 minutes with this material that um, not only is, in my estimation, superfluous, but potentially it could muddy up, you know, the, the, the pure, simple concept that I want them to get in their mind moving forward. 
Um, so I hope it's here. I hope it's here to stay. Um, I'm certainly going to keep keep doing it. Um, and I think it's been interesting the difference between fall and spring semester. So one, like as a teacher, teachers I talk to, they just feel so much more prepared. You know, they're not necessarily loving that it's online again for those who are still online, but they've they've tried it out. They know some of the pitfalls. They feel a lot more in control of the class. And the same thing is true as the students. So some of the things that that people say about how terrible fall was, and they want to kind of blame it on uh, the the modality swift teaching and I think part of it is probably one the newness of that nobody was prepared or expected for it. and then two like the pandemic was happening I think the teaching conditions could be perfect and it probably would have been a harder semester like students lives were just you know so different while we're kind of at a pause I'm gonna put another kind of pair of questions up um, and so and this is you can you know I'm the the director of the first year composition so there's kind of like that administrative side of it but something I was super interested in is a um, pandemic played out is like when it first started, we were just inundated with emails about resources, right? And and that's an impulse to be helpful. We're asking you to change. And so we're going to give you all this stuff to help you think through it. But it quickly became just like you were drowning um, in just <laughs> email after email about some online platform or, or all of these types of things. Um, and so I, I'm thinking about over the year and all the different ways that the administration, either our department specifically or um, Columbus State or even the USG, like things that they that were really ball dropped that you just felt like you needed oh. stuff and you didn't get it. Or <laughs> if there happened to be a few things where you're like, well, they at least I got this and that was like the thing that I, I most needed. Well, I can start again. I, I don't know if this quite fits in, but um, initially in the initial response to the pandemic, there was a move toward more authoritarian um, uh, management from the top, the, the chancellor down right. yeah. to the deans. And um, somewhere our provost got it in their mind that everybody had to uh, teach their courses through this proprietary software we have. It's Bright, Brightspace, I guess a lot of people out there use that. Um, and I have for belong for years used Google Classroom, and I already had everything up. The students were it was already a hybrid class, so the students were already interacting with this interface. Um, and the administration came down really hard on me and tried in the week that we took off to sort of readjust to calibrate for the rest of the semester. Really pressured me to switch the course midstream, and I actually wound up having to sort of create a fake course in this other software and email to my students. Because the biggest problem was, you, here we are already in a terribly confusing situation. I've got a delivery mode that's already working, and they want to switch it midstream in the middle of this situation. So I had to write all my students saying, look, you're going to see all these new things show up in the in the school's uh, software, Cougar View. Ignore it. I'm doing it because they're coming down on me and that sort of thing. Um, and it was really, really awful. I mean, I was stressed out and and uh, it was to me it was a direct attack on my academic freedom um, and since then things have been softening but that was sort of the beginning shot and then of course over the summer we had uh, a USG that was off the charts anti-science you know I mean initially I mean if you can remember I mean we were initially dealing with a no mask mandate in the state it was yeah. in an embarrassment across the country so like starting with that first level that we had to attack you know a summer of you know, open letters from universities, our university and universities across the country and that sort of thing to sort of beat back this authoritarian grab that sort of, that seemed to um, be the way that the people reacted to it. It feels like that's shifting quite a bit and part, a lot part because of the effort we did over the summer um, uh, and 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 to, to the point where now on the, on the end side of it, I actually feel like the administration will be more uh, uh, accommodating for my particular choice of delivery method, uh, electronic delivery method. So it's it's funny. It's like there's this initial like, oh my god, we got to control everything. This is a disaster. To now where it's like, okay, we've been through this whole year. We've had up uprisings from faculty and like all these things. You know, we've seen that. You know. Students don't even want to come if they've got the option, you know, and that, I mean, all yeah. these kinds of things have sort of softened that to a degree. 
It's been, and, and that one has been interesting to watch. And I think this is still, if I had to like articulate the biggest problem um, is I feel like administration, particularly the further you go from, from actual teachers, right? You know, like, so a program department, oftentimes even deans are still teaching and, you know, at least kind of have that, but the further you go, but they don't trust the teachers, right? They don't trust faculty. And so when we had to do this move to online, there was this terror that it was going to be a horrific experience for students and that teachers would just like flounder and not do and, and all of this stuff. And I think what we saw was like almost heroic levels of effort to like teach high quality courses, you know what I mean? And, and people just spending ungodly amounts of time trying to reach their students and whatnot. But a lot of that like authoritarian stuff, like one of the things that they, they did over break was it was either the, the spring break or the week we had after that for switching stuff over, but they kind of like ran internal reports on every um, Cougar View course to make sure people had been on it adding materials, right? And then they could say, oh my gosh, this professor isn't putting anything online. And so then they their assumption was they're just not doing anything, right? Like yeah, but they took it a step further and demanded right. that I teach through this right. method. And then they said they actually lied and said that they had created a policy saying this is the case and they hadn't created a policy. I checked with WSG. And, and then, then they the, created it, right? The department, yeah, they created it on the fly, and yeah, all the language right. changed. All of a sudden, they weren't telling me that I had to teach through Cougar View. They said I had to have certain documents on Cougar View. So it was yeah. clear that I had gotten right to the heart of academic freedom. And as tenured, um, you know, so. Yeah. It sounds like they should have been evaluating teachers from a more uh, compassionate rubric. <laughs> Well, and yeah. you see how much work it would be, right? So if you trust your teachers, they're going to do a great job. You say, what do you need? You try to get them what they need. And then if something outlying comes out, you, you address it as it happens, right? You don't trust them. You say, oh, crap. We have to make sure that they do exactly what we say. Here's a whole bunch of rules to make sure that you do it. Do it, right? Like, I, 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 that to me, the trust seems to be the big thing. Um, and I guess when I think about, like, ball dropping and not ball dropping. I did see lots of gestures, gestures, particularly in language, to being compassionate to teachers, right? And everything that they're going through. And uh, Mark would, would write like his letters from the president's Mark was our president. Yeah, 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 um, the president's iPad. And I thought many of them were really, like they, they struck me as like heartfelt and, you know, compassionate. But the disconnect between that and like the experience of like doing the work, right? And of, you know, kind of bureaucracy grinding the years behind us and things that kind of like kept going and whatnot. There was a real disconnect there. So it's like people, I felt like when I interacted with a person, there was like greater compassion in almost every situation. Um, but when you have to like interact with the institution on any level, it just, there was no space for compassion. And that's something that's really fascinating to me. Like institutions are institutions, there are, constraints with that but there have to be ways you know like things that we can say we're just not going to do that for this year right like that's we're not you know what i mean that's not necessary it's not it's not the end of the world um i don't know but it, it almost sounds like a form of the political mask that, that we're also used to seeing on display you know uh, from um i guess more proper government areas like um if somebody's running for election they will tell you um, in a very personal manner, uh, trying to relate with you, you know, what they think or what they can do for you or how, how they're feeling and how they're there for you. And sometimes that's true, but, um, and it's nice when it's true, but oftentimes it's sort of a preface for the, op the opposite experience, you know? Yeah. Um, I know that's a cynical look at it, but, it's born of experience. Well, it's, it's to me the really pressing question. So I think about this in my daily life. I, I do some administrative stuff, right? It's pretty small, right? We have like, you know, what is it? Like 10, 15 part-time instructors and then more people who teach in the program, but they're the ones I'm, I'm have most authority over. Um, but like in those roles, like what do you, what can you do in an administrative capacity that actually goes more than trying to say, hey, I hope you're well. I know it's a hard time and actually translates into I'm trying to make your life easier, right? Or I'm trying to listen and, and respond to needs as they come. Um, it's an interesting 
there's a, such a big disconnect because I think a lot of the people who I was most frustrated with this year, at least on the CSU campus, are people who I genuinely like and I think are like compassionate people trying to be ethical, but then to put that up against the experience, right? Like how come they don't, like there's, there's this, there's gotta be something. And I'm, I'm trying to like wrap my brain around what it is that keeps that from translating. I mean, to me, it feels like that same sort of trust that I experienced when I managed a coffee house. So, um, and, and I worked in, in the food industry. I was a cook for quite a while. And what I found that I would hope in academia changed from the business world and didn't at all was, especially when you get to that middle management position, there's not necessarily a lot you can do. And so then you have to be kind of the bad guy implementing different rules and different procedures that nobody wants to do. You even know might not make sense, but you can't come out and say it. Like you're in a place where, you know, your job is reliant on playing that political game. Mm -hmm. And I used to hate doing that as a manager of a coffee house. I'd get corporate would tell me what we had to do differently. Now you'd be like, that's not going to make sense. It's going to make all the drinks worse and it's going to take more time. Um, <laughs> and you know, and every barista would be like, why are we doing this? And I'd be like, well, because corporate says, you know, and, and that's kind of the position you're stuck in. And so uh, I kind of looked straight to the ch top, the chancellor as that source of distrust um, that, that really became an impediment. Um, He's the one who could have made the changes. He's the one who could have communicated a trust with us. Um, he's the one who could have uh, said, you know, uh, we want teachers to teach in the modality. Once, once we got to where it could be face-to-face -face or online, we want teachers to teach in the modality that they think suits their classroom, their students, and let's be honest, their health needs um, and their students' health needs appropriately. There was a lot of lack of trust there that really that really got under my skin. Um, I hated that I had to send really detailed documentation to HR so that I could um, teach online. You know, being only 40 years old, I'm not in a high risk age category, so it's not as provable as age. So I literally had to send documents where my doctor listed my medical conditions very pointedly and the medicine I'm taking, and I'm really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. And HR should be too. Yeah. And that was an interesting, oh, like, and this is my sense. I don't, I can't, I don't know. So maybe, but like in the fall, no, is that right? Yeah. The fall, the first time when we had to get, um, like they were so accommodating and like anybody who said, I have a health issue, they just like kind of said, okay, you can teach online. Right. And I was pleasantly surprised by that. Cause when they said we had to go through HR, I thought it was going to be this bureaucratic nightmare. And the shift then to spring, whenever, to be honest, like my read of this, and this isn't like told to me by anyone, but when USG, the chancellor leaned on the schools very hard to get a particular percentage of classroom of, of teaching back in the classroom, then suddenly like the bureaucracy got 10 times worse. I do remember that was one thing. What If we're thinking about things they did right, that fall, the process for getting the accommodations or whatnot was surprisingly humane. And did well, it's, important, it's important to give a backstory on that. That yeah. that wasn't going to happen until our president was embarrassed. Mm. Part by we did an open letter. Um, the AAUP chapter of our university did an open letter. It was signed by about 150 faculty members. Um, we went through. Uh, what was the, the tension? Was it about the was it about the accommodation specifically? Yeah, it was, it was about giving professors the ability to decide their delivery method because we know yeah. best. Um, it went through, the Faculty Senate was, was a, uh, endorsed by the Faculty Senate. The president himself delivered it to the regent, to the chancellor, <clears throat> delivered it, and it was in the news. We got news coverage mm -hmm. of all this. And then immediately after that, the USG sent out a letter that they had gotten all the presidents to sign a week or several weeks earlier contradicting it like mark would sign this our president mark would sign this letter saying we are all in support of as much in person as we can of course immediately mark would had a serious crisis of confidence among his faculty and he started having zoom meetings with first with the leaders who behind the letter and then gradually mm -hmm. spanning out from that and then it was at that point when they decided they i think they realized they had 
some sort of flexibility and power, and they basically just granted all the. So that didn't happen out of compassion. That was like that was work. So the same way that getting the USG yeah. to back off on not having a mask mandate that was really an effort spearheaded by mm-hmm. Georgia Georgia Tech, um, got national attention. It embarrassed the USG. Um, so this is all, I didn't expect our conversation to go this way because we're kind of way <laughs> off from com- composition, but it all is part of what we're working in. Um, I think what we saw is really the, ex- we all know that the right wing in our country is shifting dramatically toward authoritarian. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very documented story through the Trump administration. I think what we saw is just how deep that, push is that the, it can push all the way through a state apparatus down really to almost to the chair levels of our um, university. And, and I think our university system here in Georgia is um, if things were right, there would be an intense um, reflection, uh, investigation report about how the USG you know, undercut our academic freedom, put our lives at risk, and acquiesced to to anti-science um, impulses in the right wing that's controlling this this state. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I I think an example of like how much we acquiesce to power is this is separate from COVID, but it is an aspect of it. In our department, um, in the in the shared governance system of the university. The one thing that's spelled out for departments is that they set their own standards of excellence for promotion and tenure. We had been behind in our in updating our uh, standards in our department for a number of years, and we're starting to have some split votes for tenure and promotion. And the provost and the chair, I mean the dean, told us to come up with a new policy. We went through a whole process of creating a whole policy, and when we were at the stage where we were about to adopt it, the, de- the dean's office and the provost's office both decided, they said, we're going to come up with policies down the line. Hold off. Don't do that. And it's only after really sort of looking at the whole thing again and reading the documents that is clearly specified that we make these policies. So the fact that the chair and the provost would be willing to ask us to not do the one thing that's specified as our power of governance that is a problem. And then that we would acquiesce to it, I think is another problem. And I'm not saying that these are bad people. I'm saying this is an indication of like the depths of which authoritarianism uh, has has infected the entirety body of our system from, from the chancellor and the board of regents all the way down uh, to, to even the most minor um, administrative positions because uh, there's a fear, I think, that's like embedded in, in lower level administrators, you know, that like, I mean, yeah. So that's a rant that I didn't expect to go on. It's it's not a very comp. Well, it was was as you were talking, I was thinking like, you know, how did we get from the pandemic to this, you know, to, to here? But I think what is so important about, so we think about institutions and the ways that they because I think it's like it is in some ways endemic in institutions to want to protect themselves and their rules more than people and all of this. Once they exist, they're more about continuing to exist, perhaps, than other things. But that always gets felt ultimately on a personal level. And for us, that means in our classrooms and what we can and can't do and the choices that we can make and, and the ways that we teach and the experiences that our, our students have. So all of that backdrop that's happening alongside um the COVID-19, and it's so interesting because a lot of that story I knew, but this last year has been so full. I was like, oh yeah, like I had just no room in my brain, right? To even like hold on to some of that. And I was like, oh yeah, then that was a thing that happened. I've completely, <laughs> I just, I'm so overwhelmed as an individual person, especially at a moment like this, to be able to like keep track of and respond to, right? And interact with institutions that they never get tired or overwhelmed. They just kind of keep, pressing forward with that momentum <laughs> that is like within them. It's um it's like the yeah. combo nest. Yeah. <laughs> um if I could sort of bring it back to the question, uh, there is cute. there is something I, I'd like to to mention. Um you asked if there were any moments of ball dropping, you know, as far as uh provisions for teachers. Well I, I sort of feel 
a little self-responsible for for you know dropping my own ball i guess so to speak because i know there were a lot of professional development opportunities that um like you rebecca you had a direct hand in making possible and then others were presented to us i wish in retrospect i would have acted on those more because oftentimes they would come with a financial incentive and this is happening at a time where in my life i've never been more motivated by money you know <laughs> because it's a scary situation and you like you you see stuff starting to disappear from grocery shelves essential items yeah. i mean there, there, somewhere in my mind there's still this um unmet desire or need to go buy like a deep freezer <laughs> in case <laughs> i need to you know uh stock up on um like the end of the world food provisions or something like th th these are these are the kinds of thoughts that we were having that I think we've sort of forgotten about because they're so different from where we feel we are now. So yeah, yeah I, I I wish I would have capitalized more on those opportunities that were presented to me. And I think that's important. There's always things I wish I was doing, but I think too, like I feel a lot better now. But oh my god, this year, like the level of anxiety and just complete exhaustion and like my brain being I mean it's like this is a small thing I'm really good at replying to email <clears throat> which for an academic maybe isn't a small thing right during the pandemic there was so much email I began to dread checking my email I would like drop balls and stuff this has never happened to me before right it's just like one small microcosm of like how overwhelmed I am and the thing that you're saying like being money motivated like Maybe that's what, like, if we're trying to be compassionate, just give people some more money, which I know is the opposite of what an institution and financially and all of that. But, you know, like when I think about it, like, I don't know, there's that tension between like what's good for the university or the institution, quote unquote, and like what's good for people. The fact that those things always seem to be in different categories makes my brain is trying to solve that problem. I'm not sure it's solvable, but, you know. Speaking of money, when are we getting that thousand bucks to government? The governor, yeah, a thousand bucks, but it's only for full time employees. Which right. I'm a full time employee, I'm glad, but I'm also like, to be honest, they're the they probably have less need. Like, our part time employees clearly need a thousand dollars more, right? Like, moves like that, and they happen all the time. We're like, you know, like if there ever this is a different example, but if there ever was going to be like loan forgiveness, I'm sure it would probably only be for people who are current with their loans, which on some level, I'm like probably not the ones who need it the most like there's again but totally agree i also think there was a lot of um attention and a lot of support for us as teachers like you know chase said he, he regrets missing out on some of it and i missed out on some and i i did some of those professional development activities and they were helpful but with the amount of professional development and, and different support materials that we were being given i kept questioning like why do I have to learn how to teach my students to use D2L? Why can't the university be directing students like, you know, a simple little online tutorial? Meanwhile, we take like that same HR course every year. That's that three hour tutorial. Like we don't work with children and we've got all this right. you know, children safe and whatever. Um, but why is there not some course set up that's simple and that all students had to go through that it puts some responsibility onto them for learning how to use it, but also that puts some responsibility on, you know, the, the I, you know, I feel bad because I, I feel like they did a lot of work, the people who uh, work with, with um, Cougar View, but that their work was misdirected and it was all directed towards training us and not training the students, which was the ultimate goal. Um, and there was there was some other examples of that, but where we had more responsibilities put on us that could have not been put on us. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> on the other hand, maybe we should talk just a little bit about some positives of it that we didn't expect. Like, I, I was gonna go on a sabbatical uh, and the country that I was going to go to shut down. They're still closed. Um, so I had to, you know, get a new schedule. And of course, all my advanced courses were already spoken for, and there was a, always a need for comp. So I wound up with a four comp schedule, which is, it, for me, has been the thing that I most fear, you know, over <laughs> the years. Is that, I, you know, I, if I could, 
when my upper division classes don't make if I went up with this. But it turned out that it was awesome. I loved it. Um, and, and again, it was easier for me because I was already hybrid. So I already had basically the class online. So it was mm -hmm. really easy. I mean, like I said, the adjustment was to how to communicate things that I communicate in class um, through emails and stuff like that. But Boy, I sure loved it. I just got into a routine with it. I could get the work done in an hour or two in the morning um, and, uh, you know, just really had time to work on my research, uh, uh, keeping up on cinema for, you know, and taking long walks. And um, so there was a, there were parts of it that I, I just, I loved it. I guess <laughs> like a, a daily thing. So when it started, and we all had to stay home. My first was like, oh, this is great. I'm gonna work at home, like so distraction free. And very quickly I was like, I totally missed people, right? Mm -hmm. And leaving the house and my routine and all of this. But like as it's gone on and on, like so like now my schedule, like there is like I stay home more, right? I still go in um and whatnot, but I there is like things like I just felt a real pressure to be at the office for a particular amount of time right um on a, on a really predictable schedule and i feel much less about that now and so like moving forward i'm trying to think a little bit more about um reclaiming bits of my schedule and it's not like i go home i go home and i still do work but it's easier for me to step away when i'm at home so like i have the problem of i'll like just sit like hunched over my computer for like five straight hours and be like oh no what happened and that's never good like my anxiety just steadily creeping but when I'm at home, it's easier for me to like, you know, step out, go hang out with the birds, come back, you know, get a breath, get my anxiety levels back down to kind of zero and then go on. So like having to rethink my routine, hopefully long term, you know, I'll be able to embed more kind of these like personally rewarding behaviors into that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I feel like it's been really good being able to uh, focus on on my own goal setting, both as a teacher, but also just as a human being. Um, and I, I'm a romanticist, so I love just being able to go wander in the woods and wander around my neighborhood and get the long walkabouts that, that you know, Wordsworthian walkabouts that I've always craved in my daily routine, but not always been able to do. Um, and being able to meet on Zoom, I've even uh, gone, you know, been talking to colleagues while I'm walking in the woods, which is, you know, really lovely for me. And I've enjoyed being able to both work and kind of play at the same time, so to speak. But one thing that I felt um, kind of piggybacking off what Joe was saying with, with uh, teaching comp and having a schedule of like four comp classes being kind of like, oh, no, uh, I, I feel that as well, just because of the amount of grading that composition requires versus when I teach like a literature course, uh, there's mm -hmm. there's ways that I already knew how to streamline my grading in literature that, um, you know, work really well in teaching literature that would never work in a composition classroom. Like you can, you can give a few multiple choice quizzes to make sure they did the reading in, you know, literature. You wouldn't really want to do that in comp. It kind of goes, even when you assign reading, you, you want to be more focused on just discussion and whatnot with it, or at least I do. Um, but the I've learned how to streamline my composition grading without sacrificing. I like to write comments to all my students that are completely unique. I don't have any, you know, I know some people, and I'm, I get that it works for some people, but it's just never worked for me when I try and set up a sheet of like common things. And there are common things, but I want to phrase it differently for each student, just like naturally as a response to their paper. But I've figured out ways to do that and streamline it without writing like three paragraphs at the end of everybody's paper, which I used to kind of do. Um, and which they probably didn't read. Yeah, right. And so now so I, I, at the very least, you have to teach them how to read. Yeah, right. And now I give them basically bullet points at the end of their paper. And it's three things they did great. And one constructive criticism for working on moving forward, kind of phrased as if you were to edit this, I would like to see this happen. Yeah. Um, and and then I offer them editing. And I'm able to offer them more editing opportunities for a revised grade because I've streamlined it, um, which I think is really helpful because I don't know if I could teach the whole composition process online without offering extra editing opportunities since I feel that that's uh, 
in many ways, uh, other than conception, the most important part of the process. Uh, you think of the idea and then you have to work it out several times over. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're presenting evidence of um, a successful endeavor and, you know, working smarter, not harder. Because one thing this pandemic has forced everybody, um, well, not everybody, but all of us teachers into is this huge expansion of amount of time required to do the work that we were doing uh -huh. before. And that just in its very nature has made me um, by necessity have to become a more efficient, greater teacher, consumer of information that I then represent to my students. Um, so that that's a big positive for me, uh, getting more familiar with a workflow and the pieces of it that suit you know, the, the, the preservation of my life to a greater degree. And I'm really trying to not, so if I, if I've made a change and the change is it actually gives me more time or makes something less stressful, there's a part of me that immediately feels guilty about it. That it must be a bad change. Like that's that whole like capitalist kind of whatever thing. Like, I'm like really like rejecting that. Like, no, like this is good. I like it better. I'm going to do it because I like it better. And I chose to do it because it's useful for them. Like, I still want to keep, the needs of my students at the forefront of my mind, but there's this weird fallacy that what they need most is for me to be like killing myself. And if I'm not miserable, I'm not a good teacher. And that's, I'm just like reject, reject, right? right now. That's the core. That's the core of the yeah. the caste system. The way that the yep. the way that the the education system maintains class and social divisions. You know, I think that's an articulation of what you see in Jonathan Kozal's book. Mm -hmm. Night is dark and I'm far from home, or the research of Jonathan Ogbu. Uh, you know, yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the the point to capitalist kind of guilt, like capitalist cultural guilt towards not working hard versus working smart. I find myself asking my 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 family lives and works in Sweden, and they have a much shorter work week than I do. Much more humane. Sweden system kind of puts family first is where you should be spending your time, family and friends being a human um, and that, you know, general Swedish work week full time is 30 hours, much more manageable. Um, and I find myself asking, you know, is there a way that I could do this Swedish style? Is there a way I could allow myself to not feel guilty for working smart and not hard? And there's even studies out there that suggest that, that we're more efficient if we dedicate less time, um, there's kind of a, a sweet spot of time. And I think it was 25 to 32 hours a week. And so if, if I'm even thinking about being a good worker, well, if I want to be the most efficient worker I can be, then I really need to be trying to narrow it in to other under 30 hours a week. Easier said yeah. than done when you're teaching. But right. Well, and, and like whatever the job is, like once you get efficient at it, then they're like, great, you can do more. And I'm like, what? like that's when you have to like, you know, historically anyway, WPAs, which again, that's like being a writing program director. They have the there's like this idea of like the martyr and like it's this terrible job that you just under and all of this. And like one of the things in my research that I look at is how much of that has actually been that that ethos of compassion and wanting to, to meet the needs of students and teachers. And so, you know, a couple kind of important figureheads like took on so much in the job that it was like bad for them physically. Like one of them ended up having a nervous breakdown for a couple of years. This was like in like 1923, I think, um, really early WPA, but it's become then like normalized, right? So you think I'm gonna work really hard, I'm gonna make it for better for other people um, in your program. But what you actually do is you normalize over work in your program and in that position. So then it becomes um, and so, yeah, thinking really hard about um, like maintaining your own boundaries around work, not only is something that's good for you, but ultimately is like good for your colleagues and, and good for your students because you have to like shift that expectation of just grinding yourself to a nub that just kind of gets like, that's what people do. Um, and that's kind of the America we live in right now. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm miserable. You think so? And learning to say no when somebody asks extra work of you that's not necessary or that's not required. Like, that's really hard uh, a lesson that I've had to learn throughout the years. And actually, just today, I was kind of really proud of myself because I felt a little guilty about it, but I went ahead and sent it. I had a student ask if I could basically copy Eddie a book, edit a book he's writing that has nothing to do with my class. And 
it's uh, just a like a novel style book and um, of sci-fi. And first off, I wouldn't be the greatest editor for it. I don't write sci-fi prose. Like I don't write sci-fi non, you know, or fiction. Sorry. Uh, but secondly, I, I I used to be the teacher to be like, sure, I'll look over that. But I was like, right. no, no, I can't. I don't have the time. Um, I can't. Read, you know, I can recommend some edit editing um, services to you. <laughs> but. So I think it's probably been about our hour. We've had a good chat, so we should probably wrap up. Um, I really enjoyed kind of getting a little podcast back off the ground again. Thank you so much, Joe, for your help in that, and Leslie and Chase for coming. It was great. Thank, Thank you, you for hosting. All right, Time well, really flew with y'all. What was that? Time really flew with y'all. It really yeah. did. <laughs> great conversation. Yeah. Definitely. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.